Good morning, everyone. It is just great to be gathered once again in this time of worship together, isn't it, is it not? I've just really been blessed this morning by our time. Let's uh, bow our heads once more as we prepare to open the word. Father, throughout this um, time that we have taken in the ten words, you have shown us over and over again that we are lawbreakers, that none of us can keep these ten words, and that we need a righteousness outside of ourselves, and you have provided that in your Son, Jesus Christ, and we are so grateful and thankful for Jesus. And I pray, Lord, as now we open uh, your word to the tenth word, that your spirit would draw very near, um, speak to us, nudge us, push us along the path of righteousness in this time. And dear God, help us especially to shine the light on Jesus, who is the perfect law keeper and the one that we need to rescue us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have a Bible with you, uh, please turn to Genesis chapter 3. We'll have the verse on screen, but if you have a Bible, turn there. And of course, Genesis 3 is the chapter where humankind's fall into sin is recorded. But I want to focus on just a single verse of this very important chapter, just for a moment, and that is verse 6. There are three things that we need to pay attention to in verse 6. First of all, notice that toward the end of the verse, we're told that Adam was with Eve when Eve broke God's command by taking the fruit. Adam allowed the serpent to come into the garden, and Adam did not stop Eve when Eve reached for the fruit, and Adam willingly shared in the illicit produce. Adam, we need to see, failed mightily in the Garden of Eden along with Eve. Secondly, what I want us to notice in verse 6 is the focus of the whole verse. The focus of the whole verse is the tree. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Eve is looking at the tree. Eve is surmising the tree, scanning the details of the tree, and she takes from the tree. The tree is what we see in our camera lens as we read verse 6. The tree is such a big part of the focus there. Third, and most important for our purposes this morning, note the word desired. In the verse, the word desired, there at the beginning of the fourth line on the screen. The tree was desired to make one wise. Now think about this for a moment. Eve and Adam with her had been in the personal presence of wisdom himself, of God himself. God is the source of all wisdom. There was no need in any way, shape, or form for this couple to seek wisdom from any source other than the God who was with them. But Eve surmises the tree. She reckons that the tree could make her wise without God. She could be wise on her own. 
Now, we have the Bible, and we know, don't we, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Wisdom will not come through a tree. Wisdom will not come through any other part of God's created works, but Eve's desire for this created thing flared up. In the New Jerusalem Bible's version of Genesis 3.6, it says that Eve saw that the tree was enticing. That's the word they use, enticing for the wisdom that it could give. This unlawful enticement, this unlawful desire on the part of Eve caused her to reach out and take from the tree and share with Adam. Well, with that part of the biblical story as our background, let's flip over to our preaching text today, to Exodus 20, verse 17, which is the tenth word of the ten words. The tenth word reads, it was read for us earlier, but here it is again, you shall not, what? Covet your neighbor's house, you shall not, what? Covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything, including the Lexus, the digital fridge, the Sea-Doo, that is your neighbor's. Now, the word covet that gets repeated twice in this Tenth Commandment is the same word, Hebrew word, that we had in Genesis 3, 6, that is translated there as desire. The primal human sin was coveting. Eve and Adam with her coveted the tree. They desired the tree. They set their hearts on the tree when they should have been setting their hearts on God. And friends, this is what coveting is all about. The basic meaning of the Hebrew word that we find in both Genesis 3.6 and in Exodus 20.17 is to desire. To covet is to hanker after. More specifically, the sin of coveting is desiring or hankering after something or someone visible who or which is illicit for us to be hankering after, something or someone visible that is the wrong thing or person for us to desire. The Tenth Commandment is teaching us that while there are right things to desire after, there are also wrong things to desire after. And we need to learn to desire the right things rightly. You shall not covet. Now, aside from the tree in the garden and that story, another great biblical illustration of illicit coveting is found in the story of Achan in Joshua chapter 7. Achan did what? He looked with desire. He looked with hankering at some designer clothes and some precious commodities, all of which had been devoted to God, And Achan took those items for himself. And when Achan confessed his sin to Joshua in Joshua 7, verse 21, he used the same word 
that we have in Genesis 3.6 and in the 10th commandment. Achan says this, I coveted these things and I took them. I hankered after things that were unlawful for me to hanker after and I ended up taking them. We might also talk about David here and his illicit desire for another man's wife. David looked upon the visible, physical form of Bathsheba, and David coveted Bathsheba. He desired her, and David ended up taking Bathsheba. Back to our verse. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now, let's just pause for a moment and take this in. You ready? So, whereas the bulk of the ten words focus on what we might call prohibited external actions... So actions like carving images, murdering a person, stealing from a person, uh, committing adultery, speaking falsely, actions. The tenth and final commandment focuses, we need to see, it focuses instead on the inward life of a person. The inward life. We might think as we go through the Ten Commandments that, hey, you know, I'm doing pretty good. I may not have kept them perfectly, but I haven't committed adultery. I haven't murdered anybody. I haven't stolen from anybody. And then we get to the tenth word, and we find, no, we're commandment breakers. The inward life. This is very important for us to see here. The tenth commandment is concerned with our inner life. Coveting or desiring something illicit happens inside a person. It happens in a person's heart. So this command then is different from the others in that it's focused less on what we do in terms of uh, external actions and focus more on what we want to do. This command is focused on our thoughts, on our intentions, on our inner desires and our motives and our attitudes. This is about our interior. The Lord looks on the heart. And here in the Tenth Commandment, the Lord is looking on our hearts. And it's really not coincidental that this particular commandment comes right at the end of the Ten Words. After all, isn't it our inner off-track, heart desire, our covetousness that issues in the action of stealing, in the action of murder, in the action of false witness and, and adultery. Isn't it an inner selfish desire that would cause us to create our own God and worship that false God instead of worshiping The real God. The point is, friends, that lurking behind the prohibited actions of the other commandments is covetousness. This self-centered hankering of the heart. So that the tenth word becomes a sort of summary 
of the other commandments. We read the tenth word, and automatically, as soon as we read it, we're driven backward through commandment nine, eight, seven, six, all the way back to the first commandment. And we see that our inner covetousness is really the root problem that produces in us law-breaking behaviors and actions of all sorts of kinds. And there is a particular relationship between the two bookend commandments. In other words, there is a particular relationship between the first commandment, to have no other gods before Yahweh, and the tenth word, not to covet. Now to see this, let's go back just for a moment to our example from Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve coveted the tree. They desired the tree for its wisdom. What were they doing in that moment of covetousness? They were replacing, listen, replacing the true God who is the source of all wisdom. They were replacing him with a substitute God that they thought would give them wisdom. And in that moment, Adam and Eve broke both the tenth and the first Commandments. They coveted and they went after a substitute God at the same time. So that with the tenth commandment, we come full circle back to the first word. Chris Wright explains this very well when he says, quote, To break the tenth is to break the first. To break the tenth is to break the, the first. He says, For covetousness means setting our hearts and affections on things that take the place of God. Listen to that last sentence one more time. Wright says, covetousness means setting our hearts and affections on things that take the place of God. So that there is good reason for the Apostle Paul in Colossians 3.5 to equate covetousness with idolatry. He equates covetousness with idolatry. He says that covetousness is idolatry. How can Paul say that? He can say that because when we covet something or when we covet someone, our desire has now veered off the God-centered target that it should be on, and our hearts are now saying that this thing that I am coveting will be better than God. This thing that I am coveting will be more satisfying than God. God is not as good as this thing I covet. God has not provided enough for me. I need more than God. I am now idolizing the thing that I covet. I am replacing God with this coveted thing or this coveted person. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is in your that is your neighbor's. Now, let's talk for a moment about the list of things that we find here in the 10th word. The list of things, again, is this our neighbor's house, our neighbor's spouse, our neighbor's servants, our neighbor's animals. And finally, the catch all anything that is our neighbors. The word house in this commandment refers not only to the physical structure that is a dwelling or a house, 
but it also refers to the household goods. As David Baker explains it, this word house includes, quote, all of a man's possessions that are economically significant. The boat in the driveway, the hot tub in the backyard, uh, the Gucci purse in the walk-in closet. We are not to covet the household of our neighbor. Now, we notice here that what we have, in fact, in the remainder of the list is a listing of the contents of the house, wife, servants, working animals, and other things. Now, in the ancient Near East, a man might desire his neighbor's wife for sexual reasons, to be sure, but he might also desire her for her economic significance. For example, for the dowry that she brought into the marriage. Notice that after the phrase, neighbor's wife, we have items of decreasing importance. Notice this. Servants, but after servants, lower on the scale, animals, and then finally, other stuff, other material goods. In all of it, look at the text with me. Pay attention especially here to the frequency of the word neighbor. Notice, it appears three times in this verse. We bring, listen, we bring damage to our neighbor when we covet his stuff. Or to put it in positive terms, we are to love our neighbor by not coveting his or her stuff. David Baker makes an excellent point when he says that in our world today, we've probably all heard this phrase, Keeping up with the Joneses. You heard that? By which we mean, we have to, we think, we have to accumulate material wealth and goods to keep up with the level of material goods and wealth that our neighbor, the Joneses, have. But Baker says that, biblically speaking, we shouldn't talk about keeping up with the Joneses. We should be talking instead about loving the Joneses. We love the Joneses, we love our neighbor by not coveting his stuff, by not resenting him for having more stuff than we do. We love our neighbor by rejoicing with him that God has granted him more stuff than us. And we focus our heart on being contented with whatever things God has seen fit to give to us. The tenth word has this clear focus on the neighbor. Now, we said at the very beginning of this series that the first commandment especially focuses on God, right? As do commandments two, three, and four. While the final six commandments focus on our relationship with our neighbor. And now that neighbor focus comes to a climactic point in the tenth word. We have this word neighbor three times. And Romans 13.9 says that not coveting is to love our neighbor. Well, we've said this morning that the tenth word is focused on our inner desires. It's focused on our heart. It's focused on what our heart wants. It's important for us to, t- uh, to understand, however that through the Bible, what we see is that desire in and of itself, desire in and of itself is not being condemned. 
And it's not being condemned in the tenth word, desire itself. Again, I'll say it. Desire in and of itself is not being condemned in the tenth word. We are not being commanded here to extinguish all desire or to renounce all desire like Buddhists strive to do. Rather, this commandment is about identifying wrong desire and replacing it with right desire. This is about the exchange of desires. Improper desires for proper desires. Unhealthy desires for healthy desires. There are many passages in Scripture that teach us to desire. Did you know that? Many passages that teach us to desire the right things. For example, the first two verses of Psalm 42. Those verses encourage us, don't they? They encourage our souls to pant after God. Are you panting after God this morning? To thirst after God. In other words, to have a passionate desire for God. Psalm 119.20 encourages our souls to be, listen to the language, consumed with longing for God's revelation. To be consumed with longing describes a very intense desire, doesn't it? In Psalm 73, verse 25, the psalmist exclaims to God, he says, There is nothing on earth that I what? That I desire besides you. In Philippians 1.23, Paul desired what? He desired to depart and be with Christ. And so desire, friends, for the right things is promoted in Scripture. Jesus wants us to desire more righteousness every day of our lives. Jesus wants us to desire with ever-increasing passion that God's kingdom come, that God's will be done. So the issue of the tenth word, I need to stress it, is not desire in and of itself. The issue that God is addressing is a wrongful desire, the desire of what belongs to others, desires that veer us away from God and away from loving our neighbor, self-centered desires. Now, friends, one way we might think of coveting is that it's like a largely undetected virus that lives inside each and every one of us. So often we don't even know that it's active in us. We don't detect it. And around the center of this virus called covetousness, spinning in the orbit around this virus, are other closely related sins like greed, envy, and jealousy. They're all related. Covetousness is such an insidious thing. You and I might like to say to ourselves, well, this bigger house I'm after is connected to my ambition. And ambition is an okay thing. Meanwhile, it may simply be greed and covetousness and not any sort of healthy ambition that is driving us. Or we might like to say to ourselves, how can this sexual affair that I'm having be so wrong when it gives me so much pleasure 
that I lacked beforehand. We avoid naming our rank covetousness and selfishness, and we call it pleasure instead. The Tenth Commandment is really asking us a question, isn't it? And the question is, what really is your treasure? And I want you to, before God right now, get sober before yourself. Ask yourself, is the treasure of my heart God? Be real with your answer because it does you no good to fudge your answer. Is the treasure of your heart actually God? Now listen, friends. God has designed us, he has so designed us that our heart's full satisfaction will only be found in him. Did you know that? Is the treasure of your heart God? Now here's what happens invariably to every single person whose heart's treasure is not God. That person will then, if they don't have God as the treasure of their heart, that person will have a massive, gaping hole in their heart. And that person's desire will unleash itself in any and every direction other than God. The person whose heart's treasure is not God will fish and will search and will strive and will scheme to fill the empty hole in their heart with anything and everything other than God. And listen, that person will become addicted to whatever he or she puts in the hole. Addicted to drugs. Addicted to alcohol. Addicted to sex addicted to materialism, or addicted to power over others, or addicted to gaming, addicted to food, addicted to shopping, addicted to repeated nose jobs, plastic surgery, addicted to exercise. Name your addiction. Now, I'm going to go ahead and I'll answer the question for myself that I asked you moments ago. The question directed at Brent Dunbar is, what really is my treasure? Is the treasure of my heart God? And the answer is, not every moment of every day. I know that I have failed to consistently and to persistently love the Lord my God with my whole being. I have failed. I don't do that 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Frankly, there are some minutes in my day where I care a whole lot more about the items pictured in the Publisac flyers than I do about treasuring God. I mean, let's get real here. I know that I I live immersed in a coveting culture 
I myself am already caught in the web of materialism, to use Al Mohler's phrase. I covet things more than I probably even realize. I have broken the Tenth Commandment, and I break the Tenth Commandment. I am in a battle against the virus of covetousness in my heart, and I know that I need help from outside myself if this virus is ever to be killed off. Praise God, he sent Jesus. Jesus sits me down in Mark 7, 21 and 22, and he affirms, he says, Brent, coveting comes from your heart. And then in Luke 12, 15, Jesus, as Yahweh in the flesh, Jesus looks me in the eye and he says to me, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For your life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions. Wow. Our culture screams at us that our lives do consist in the abundance of our possessions. But Jesus says, no. And Jesus gives the game plan. He wants me to wake up to the fact that covetousness lives inside me, and he wants me to be on guard against it. And Jesus has his apostle Paul command me, in Colossians 3.5, commands me to... Kill covetousness. To take steps to put this thing to death. Now what's very interesting, friends, in Romans chapter 7, is that Paul tells us that the 10th commandment, the 10th commandment, was the specific commandment that awakened him to his own sinfulness. Paul recognized his own covetousness through what God revealed in God's law. Well, not only does Jesus warn us about coveting and want us to kill coveting in ourselves, listen very carefully, friends, Jesus also is himself the fulfilling desire of our longing hearts. I want to say that again. Jesus himself is the fulfillment of our longing hearts. It's Jesus who fills the God-shaped hole that is in every human heart. The person of Jesus is where our heart's desires are satisfied. Jesus himself is our heart's contentment and our heart's delight. He is the fulfillment of our every longing. This morning Jesus says to your desirous, hungry soul, he says this, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Again, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Friend, you will search for bread in every possible corner of this world, and you will be unsatisfied until your heart lands on the crucified, risen Jesus Christ, where you will find the great treasure that you have been searching for. 
So run to Jesus. Flee to Jesus. Through Jesus you gain the new heart that was promised already in the Old Covenant. You need a new heart to obey not only the Tenth Commandment, but all of God's commandments. I covet that phone. (laughs) You need a new heart to obey not only the Tenth Commandment, but all of God's commandments. In fact... And this has point, been pointed out very well. We're working to a conclusion now. So this has been pointed very well, pointed out very well by Daryl Johnson. When God promised us a new heart back in Ezekiel 36, listen to this. When he promised a new heart to us, he said that his spirit would come to dwell in that heart. Now get that. The very one whom we have transgressed against with our coveting and our law-breaking hearts comes to dwell in our hearts. In Ephesians 3.17, it's the risen Christ who dwells in our hearts. And in the verse before that, in Ephesians 3.16, God strengthens our inner being through his spirit. Because God knows that without such strengthening, we will not be able to overcome the covetousness that leads to the breaking of the other commandments. So as Daryl Johnson puts it, the lawgiver's response to our turning away from him for our ultimate satisfaction is to come and dwell in us. Because unless that happens, we will turn to anything and everything except him in an effort to satisfy our longing and our desire. God knows, friends, that he is the fulfillment of our desire, and so he comes to dwell personally in our hearts so that the satisfaction that we seek will be achieved. God is good. My friend, my encouragement to you this week is to see this. To see that your desire for a married person's spouse is but a symptom of your deeper longing for God. Your passion to have the Tesla that your neighbor drives is but a symptom of your deeper desire for God. Your panting after your neighbor's designer wardrobe is but a symptom of your deeper hankering for God. So what do you do? You pray earnestly to God that he would incline your heart to him in every part of your life. Pray that God would create in you a fresh desire to seek first his kingdom. As Johnson puts it, He encourages us to go hard after God and his kingdom when everybody else is going after material goods. Because again, you will never be satisfied with anything less than God. So recognize that your cravings for things other than God are symptoms of the deepest craving that is in you, which is a craving for God. Further... And here again, I'm borrowing from Daryl Johnson because he's just given us some really good application here. He reminds us that one, now listen to this, one of the most powerful antidotes to covetousness is giving. Give stuff away. When you give stuff away, 
What you're saying is, my soul is not believing the lie that getting and accumulating and keeping stuff will fill the gap in my soul. Give for your own soul's sake. What you need in your soul is Christ. You don't need anything in the Publisac flyer. What you need in your soul is Jesus Christ. So give stuff away as an antidote to covetousness and for your own spiritual health. And then last, Johnson also reminds us that the worship of God is the way to overcome covetousness. Yes? He says, to worship is to bring the empty soul to God and let him fill us with himself. We need to be regular and consistent worshipers, not just on Sunday, but through the entire week, enjoying God, enjoying the joy that God has in himself. That is how we overcome covetousness, when we become the kind of people whose hearts can exclaim with the psalmist, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Johnson says, the most powerful antidote to a covetous heart is the worship of God. And he gives a great illustration. He says this. I love this. made me chuckle. I'm driving home and I'm listening to him preach on the 10th word. And I thought, ah, I've got to use that. He says, we are told often that you should never go to the grocery store shopping for groceries if you have an empty stomach. If you go shopping for food on an empty stomach, you'll make foolish decisions and you will buy more food than you can eat. I know I've done that. He says, similarly, don't go into your day without feasting first on God, without drinking your fill of God first. When you feast and drink from God's table and fountain first in your day, then your desires and your cravings in the remainder of the day will be kept in line. Well, as we close this sermon, and as we close this entire series of sermons on the ten words, uh, I want to read you uh, just three paragraphs uh, from Al Mohler's book, Words from the Fire, Hearing the Voice of God in the Ten Commandments. These paragraphs come from the conclusion of Mohler's book, and I thought it was a very appropriate reflection for us to consider as we end this series. So Mohler writes this, he says, We reach the conclusion of the Ten Commandments with the knowledge that it is only by God's mercy that we would ever know such truths. It is only by divine grace that we can hear such wisdom from our Creator. In His mercy, God does not leave us to our own sinful devices, but instead He lovingly commands us. As Christians, we read these commandments with the knowledge that, more than anything else, These commandments point to Jesus Christ as the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. Understood rightly, these commandments lead not to our despair that we fall short of them, but to our thankfulness for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Christ comes to save lawbreakers like ourselves. Thus we see the commandments themselves as a grace to us. But our confidence is not in our ability to keep these commandments, for we will surely fail. Our confidence is in Christ. 
whose perfect obedience fulfills the law. The Ten Commandments first heard by Israel as the covenant people of God are now heard by the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are instructed by the law as we cling to the gospel of Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we praise you and thank you for the clear diagnosis of our sickness. But we praise you more for the remedy, for the antidote, the rescue for Jesus Christ. We thank you for the power of the Holy Spirit that now as believers we are enabled to obey the commands. Lord God, as we leave this place later this morning, I pray that your spirit would keep walking closely with us and whispering the words of the ten words to us throughout our day. And Lord, keep pointing us to the Savior, to Jesus Christ, and him crucified and risen. We thank you for your word, and we thank you for this time we've shared together. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, may you be satisfied to fill a little space if God be glorified. And not hurry to and fro, seeking for some great thing to do. But seek from God daily strength while keeping at his side. Till you can say with the apostle of old, I have learned to be content in whatever circumstance I am in. Amen.